Welcome to the Business of Government. I'm Amanda Lang. This is a special podcast series for The Hub. On it, we're aiming to take a closer look at how our governments function in Canada. Things like their effectiveness, but also their failures. We're taking a nonpartisan, non-jaundiced view of how what's arguably the most important service is delivered to Canadians. And our aim is to understand what we could do better, differently, what's going wrong, and maybe even celebrating some things that we're getting right. Some of the subjects that we want to explore include why it sometimes feel like our governments just aren't that good at big projects. Big procurements seem to go wrong time and again, from new jet planes, commissioning ships, to of course the famous IT system that pays federal bureaucrats. It can feel like government bungles things as much as possible and at a much greater rate than the private sector. In this series, we want to ask the question, how is government functioning? Is it working well? Where are the shortfalls? What could be done better? We're also going to look at the size of government. Sometimes it only ever seems to increase in size. Is there an ideal size for governance? And we're harking back to nudge policies. Remember them? Are they still being used? And could our own psychological behaviors be used to better effect to help govern us better? So let's get started. Welcome to episode five, Making the Tough Calls. When it comes to effective government, it's pretty obvious which people have ownership of the good and the bad. Our elected officials are held to account for how government functions. That can be hard when the issues are beyond their immediate control. Think of things like a properly working bureaucracy or a department, but it's even harder when those politicians have to take action on things that they know will be politically unpopular. So we wanted to talk to some politicians who know a little bit about that. Jason Kenney was a federal politician and a cabinet minister in Stephen Harper's governments, winning re-election in 2015, even as his prime minister's government lost the election. He ran for the leadership of his party in Alberta, and within a couple of years was premier of Alberta, a post he relinquished voluntarily in 2021, as pandemic policies created divisions inside his party. Let me start by saying thanks so much for being here with us today. Great to be here, Amanda. Thank you. I guess the maybe obvious place to start is, do you think government functions well? It's arguably the most important service in the country that touches everybody every day in different ways. Are we doing a good job? Well, I'll give you the political answer and say it depends. Look, if you travel through the developing world and much of the rest of the world, you, you come to Canada, you're going to say government works very well here. And that's one of the reasons so many people try to immigrate to our country. On the other hand, I think by our own Canadian uh, standards, uh, government is not working well uh, in recent years. This is not a partisan point, but I'm not the first to comment on growing questions about state capacity. And, you know, one obvious thing that pops into mind was the huge problem with limited healthcare capacity that emerged uh, during COVID, mm-hmm. the huge wait lists that preceded COVID and the even larger ones that have followed COVID. Uh, in a country that has that, that's in the top quartile of the developed world in healthcare spending, and yet we're in the bottom quartile in terms of outcomes, diagnostic and treatment wait times, uh, doctors and nurses uh, per capita, and all sorts of other uh, outcomes. So that's just one, I think, glaring example in the largest area of public spending about how our system is not working well. 
but I think more broadly, uh, you know, just look at the basic administrative functions of government these days. Uh, just getting the basic, boring, uh, prosaic stuff done. Wait queues for the immigration department, um, and I can I, I have some obvious experience in that. I was immigration minister for five years. Right. Uh, the situation has deteriorated massively in recent years. Uh, wait times for passport processing. So when, you know, it, I can, here in Alberta, people are waiting sometimes for over a year uh, for land titles to be uh, uh, processed by the provincial government. So I know every government in Canada is facing these huge and growing inventories. It's not because, by the way, of austerity. We're pretty much at or close to the historic peak in public spending in this country. Right. So I think there are some growing and deep issues about state capacity and the efficiency of the modern state in Canada. So uh, in some ways, it's hard to compare healthcare to almost anything else. And I only say that, but maybe it, this is a good entry point to the structural issues we've created. Because of course, healthcare is not, you can't say that's the federal government's issue. Uh, you can't even say it's provincial government's issue. Because of course, we've created a system where it's a network uh, of different providers, uh, and each one has its own unique problems and bottlenecks. I guess I want to level up and then say whether it's healthcare or immigration or uh, any of the other functions that don't seem to work the way we wish they did. Do are we nimble enough about? We all can see the problems. I mean, as you say, a, a backlog of a million human beings waiting to learn their fate in Canada uh, on the immigration side. Not good. Are we are we nimble enough about figuring out how to solve them? I guess, which does go to government service. Absolutely not. And I think there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But part of this goes with, is I think the natural result of when you have a state monopoly and you lack the motive force of innovation, which is competition. So when you carve out state monopolies in various areas and you don't have the pressure of competition, you often end up with sclerotic systems that are rationed uh, where the resources are rationed, which means central planning, and central planners will never have adequate information to prepare well for uh, the future. But that's, I think, a pretty clear lesson of political economy in the 20th century. So, you know, in, in terms of jurisdiction, federal, provincial, I'm not sure I, I agree with you that um, that is a point of, of much confusion. The federal role is a funding role. Uh, I mean, obviously, the feds do deliver health care or are more responsible for direct primary health care for First Nations, uh, the military and, and, and federal prisons. But that apart, um, provinces are responsible. It's very clear under the Constitution. And uh, but I, I do think in some cases we have this blurring of lines. The federal government, I think largely for political reasons, always wants to be seen to be playing a larger role in a whole range of areas. And uses its, and this is going back to the 1960s, uses its um, uh, fiscal power to sort of buy its way into provincial jurisdiction, which does sometimes confuse things about who, where ultimate responsibility lies. I'll give you one example. Outside of Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland, the provinces contract with the federal government for the RCMP to act as their provincial police force under the authority of their solicitor general. And uh, that's what we do here in Alberta. So you've got this strange situation where the police notionally are reporting up to the provincial solicitor general, but operationally they're reporting to RCMP in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And this often creates gaps, um, service gaps. It means like 
you know, the RCMP has an interest in moving people around the country. So you get somebody who's come out of Art Regina Depot. They're from New Brunswick. They're they're serving in Wetaskiwin for two or three years, and then and then they're assigned to Whitehorse or something. So you have a revolving door, which works against a sort of community policing, and you often have staffing uh, gaps, and and local people don't know who to complain to. Do they call their MLA? Their provincial minister? Do they talk to their MP to go to the federal minister of public safety? So I do think sometimes um, that, uh, like in principle, a federation should lead to better policy outcomes, better operational outcomes, because it, the, the, at its best, a federation is a series of provincial policy laboratories that actually can innovate, competing for people, investment, right. tax revenue, et cetera. Yep. But practically, it often doesn't work that way, especially when the feds get uh, get cross-threaded with provincial responsibility. Fair enough. Uh, so jurisdictional issues, I guess, created an, an overlay of problem inside a government. I want to focus on on the provincial government um, you're intimately aware of. Uh, and obviously, you know both levels. So it's an interesting perspective that you can bring to us. What are kind of the bottlenecks to better service, if you will? Or does it function pretty well in the sense that as a premier, you can say, you know, this is a vision and this is my speech from the throne and you can get it done. Or are there kind of a series of things that get in your way? Yes, you can get it done, but there's always going to be challenges and obstacles in moving the policy ball down the field in a big modern complex democracy. I, my own experience was, as both a, minute, a very activist minister in Ottawa, I mean, anybody will tell you I was, uh, well, I think one um, academic expert in immigration policy said uh, that uh, before I was minister of immigration, he could take a sabbatical for a year and come back and nothing would have changed. But when I was minister every morning, when he went to read the paper with his coffee, there was a new policy. So I was a very activist minister and, an, and a very activist premier. And I, I found that uh, broadly speaking, the public service, both federally and provincially, was very responsive to clear direction. It, it, it does, however, require a kind of relationship of trust where uh, the, the elected people have to be really transparent with at the least at the very least senior public servants about what it is they're trying to achieve and why what the motives are i think that perhaps some of the best advice i ever got in government the administration of government was from my wizened uh first and and now former deputy minister dick fadden who um at, when i was at immigration he went on to become dm at to defense national security advisor head of csis so really brilliant man and he said to me minister the most important advice I can impart is to please be clear and transparent with us about why it is you're trying to achieve something. Because if we can understand what the motive is, we can deliver better. And then their job, uh, in, in principle, is to provide uh, fearless advice and loyal implementation. The fearless advice part may mean coming back and saying, here are the unintended consequences of this policy you may not have considered. Here are some negative things that may happen, some knock-on effects. Or this is not practical for these reasons, or Treasury Board and Finance will not get, likely will not give you this money, or the more typically what they do is present you with three options. Uh, they call it the it is called the Goldie, Goldilocks trick. Their preferred option will usually be the there'll be like a really uh, minimal minimal option, a super aggressive and perhaps reckless one, and then the Goldilocks just it's just right uh, option. So they come back with that policy advice. And then there's often a bit of a tango back and forth as, you know, you're, you're the elected person trying to achieve perhaps a, a bold election commitment or solve a, a serious problem. 
And very often, the the elected person in my seat would, you know, push, but push respectfully, right? Push to really see what are the outer limits of what is operationally possible or legally possible. Right. Uh, Because often I think uh, government uh, lawyers have a tendency towards risk aversion. So, you know, the job of the political person, I think, is to probe what are the outer limits of, of what is practical in achieving policy goals. And then the, the, the bureaucracy's job is, is to listen to that and, where possible, get to yes. And I generally found that that was the case. Very rarely in my time as a, my nine years as a federal minister, my four years as a provincial premier, did I find the bureaucracy clearly, or in bad faith, trying to um, uh, block. Now, sometimes what they'll do, if they really don't like something, their their best friend will be delay. Let's just wait out this minister right. or this government and see if things change and maybe the the maybe circumstances will uh, will change as well. So I think that would be the 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 typical strategy of a public service when it really doesn't want to do something is just endless delay. But generally, I had a really good relationship and and was able to do a lot of pretty ambitious things in fairly short order. Which I guess is the the evidence that it's possible. Uh, you know, it, it, our our system of government does allow majority governments to get stuff done, and even effective minority governments to get a lot done. Uh, one of your colleagues described it as seventeen layers of bureaucracy in terms of being a minister and trying to kind of get something passed. You talk about the the risk aversion. There are all kinds of good reasons why. You know, there are multiple departments. You just referred to some of them, right? It's not just your uh, your your own cabinet uh, decision that has to be made. There's a bunch of other factors at play. But is there too much? Could we streamline some of this? And when it's really urgent, have you been able to do that? Just to say, skip all the red tape. We're actually doing X, Y, or Z. Sometimes, yes, I was able to do that. You know, speaking of red tape, I always, you know, we, we people in the private sector and myself, in, in, when I was in politics, would often complain about huge red tape burden on the private sector, on civil society. But there is huge internal red tape, enormous process. And this is thicker in Ottawa than it is in the provinces because with a few exceptions like defense, immigration, Ottawa and and, uh, Indigenous services, Ottawa is not really a service delivery government. It is a funding and policy government. I mean, what does the Department of Health deliver in Ottawa, really? Where, where the problems are actually running hospitals and responsible for all of the operations every single day. And so uh, consequently, this kind of th- there's this constant tendency of, for Ottawa to have all of these processes, procedures, and for the sake of it. And then you layer on to it policies like bilingualism, everything needs to get translated, even if people are not. I'll give you one example. Uh, this is a pretty startling one. I was trying to urgently remove a a former Nazi war criminal who had lied his way into the country uh, after the Second World War. And he had been gaming the system, uh, I guess you could say fairly, using every legal avenue at his disposal, appeal upon appeal upon appeal, to uh, stay in the country and avoid the revocation of his citizenship for like 30 years. And I was really losing patience because I thought this guy needed to face justice while he was still alive. And finally, one of the applications got delayed by three years because all of his pleadings had to be translated into French. And I said, well, who's actually going to read that? And the answer was nobody, but it's a legal requirement. I'll just, so 
I'm obviously for broadly the idea of a bilingual national government, but mm. my point is there's a lack of often a lack of the application of common sense, right? Which uh, just kind of is layered upon itself. Uh, provincial governments tend to be much more nimble because they got to be. They've actually got to deliver the services and and face the music if they don't efficiently. But um, I would say, yeah, that often, especially in Ottawa, you just get uh, redundant layers of bureaucracy. Uh, you know. The brilliant Canadian professor uh, at the University of New Brunswick, Donald Savoy, wrote a book about this called uh, Whatever Happened to the Music Teacher, where he says when he grew in the town he grew up in, every school had a, had a music teacher. And that was no longer the case now. And he said, he, he was basic, and he said, why is this? But he went and looked at all of the, the profusion of new agencies and quangos, quasi non-government organizations and procedures that eat up public resources that deny those resources from front from the front line services. So I do think that is a, a real problem. It's not just my anecdotal observation. I think he and others have demonstrated that. So I, I want to talk a little bit about where politics does influence. And I think it's always important when we talk about government, we think about government not to oversimplify how hard things are. It's a big, complex uh, machinery at the federal, the provincial level, doing big, complex things full of people that I think for the most part are well-intentioned. When you are premier, uh, as you were, in a time uh, of great stress, as you were uh, in pandemic, and issues come up that are polarizing, as they did, I'm curious about your take on uh, if there's been a shift, if it's harder to do hard things now, I guess, to build consensus, to um, find your way through, because these and maybe those crises happen so infrequently that we we won't lie awake at night and worry about it. Or maybe we should and say, what's happened to us that we can't actually find consensus in the middle of hard things and let our politicians make tough choices? Yeah, I think the answer broadly is yes, there's greater polarization. Uh, social media, I think, has obviously helped to amplify that. It's harder to communicate. I mean, it, look, COVID was unique in in pretty much every respect. Okay, so it's, I don't think uh, we can draw a lot of, of broader lessons about our political system or uh, system of government uh, from the hopefully the aberration of COVID. But uh, it, it certainly highlighted it. Ampl it magnified the the the, the growing uh, polarization. So, and I found it, for example, in the COVID context, hard to communicate. And I, I think I'd, I've been credited through my 25 years in elected life, 30 years in public life uh, for being a pretty good communicator, a fairly persuasive, but I found it almost impossible to persuade or even speak to some segments of the population in COVID. You know, there were, and I'll, I'm, I know this is a nonpartisan series, but I'll, I'll break this down in, in, into more political terms, which is to say there are large segments of the population that have broadly come to distrust uh, mainstream legacy media outlets. And I think mainstream legacy media are partly, have some uh, responsibility for this. Yep. Uh, and, and so what's happened is you've had the rise of all alternative media, both on the left and the right. And often their business model is the monetization of anger. So I found during COVID that if I stood up at a news conference and said, folks, we're going to have to bring in some really difficult and painful restrictions because we're running out of hospital beds and we need to make sure 
that uh, if you get into a car accident or a loved one has a heart attack, that there's a bed for them. So we're going to have to slow a viral spread in order to preserve emergency, you know, critical healthcare capacity. Seems reasonable. So if I went out and said that, a lot of people would hear it. They may not like it, but they would understand at least what the motive was and it was necessary. My quibble about the policy, my quibble about the healthcare system, but they would understand what we were trying to do and why. But I found in COVID, there was a whole segment of the population that had opted out of mainstream institutional legacy media who were only, in one case, listening to uh, alt-right media and who just kept seeing stories about nurses doing TikTok dances in empty hospitals and that COVID was fake or massively exaggerated. And so those folks never heard what I had to say. And, and, and so they thought that, that these restrictions were done completely arbitrarily or for malicious reasons. So, uh, you know, that's an extreme example, mm-hmm. but it's one that certainly worries me. What is the, you know, when you think about effective governing, obviously in a democracy, the sharing of information, you reach consensus only or compromise through sharing of information. To me, whether it's the mandate, vaccine mandates, or the response of the convoy in Ottawa, and, and obviously I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on that, but that also, I think, illustrated that there's some strong sentiment on part of the spectrum about what was happening. You know, if you'd asked me what, who's a good politician to speak to this population, I would have said Jason Kenney. He's he's a, he's not just a conservative. He's a conservative's conservative. He's fairly. Right. And yet you couldn't reach them, which yeah. makes do we need to despair about that? Look, I was one of the founders of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation 30 years ago, uh, leading the charge on uh, fiscal conservatism when it wasn't popular. I on just about any issue you can name. I was a principled conservative, often at the front of the parade for 30 years, foreign policy, security policy, uh, uh, moral, cultural issues, fiscal, economic, you name it. And then suddenly I found myself in COVID being regarded as a, 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 a globalist shill for the World Economic Forum and uh, somebody who was... Uh, a craven, power-hungry dictator arbitrarily uh, violating people's fundamental freedoms. And even though I was so obviously and clearly through COVID struggling to, to avoid restrictions wherever possible, uh, it was, was it faced massive criticism uh, from my, my, my uh, opposition, from many in the media and, and many in the commentariat. So I just found it, it was bizarre that here we were in Alberta clearly trying to maintain the most open, least restrictive COVID policy, and yet there was something like uh, 20% of the population who thought I was uh, being uh, cavalier about uh, endless lockdowns. We never really had, I mean, arguably we never really had lockdowns in Alberta. We had to close the schools for operational reasons a couple of times briefly. Uh, after the spring of of twenty uh, twenty, but yeah, you're, you're pointing to something that that I found just astonishing. That all of the credibility I thought I had built up over twenty five or thirty years as a defender of limited government, of uh, powerful civil society, of personal freedoms, none of that 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 seemed to matter not a whit to people. And I guess I can understand it because people were were, were angry, they were frustrated, and they wanted somebody to blame. 
can we hope uh, and assume that that was tied to the, as you say, we hope uh, the anomaly that was a pandemic with all of the heightened fear and risk and everything that brought deep emotion to that? Or is this a new era? I do think there is a small sliver of the population, and it's a little larger in Alberta than the rest of Canada, uh, that that just seems incapable so far of getting past COVID uh, frenzy, COVID anger on both sides, right? Yeah. At both ends of the spectrum, and uh, that worries me. And 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 you know, my quick take on this is when I helped to start the Canadian Taxpayers Federation thirty years ago, we go door to door to sell memberships. Every now and then we come across some crazy old coot uh, who was carrying on about an anti-Semitic banking conspiracy. But I think, you know, I've reflected on this. Those guys, if they wrote a letter to the editor, were not bad. It wouldn't get published anywhere. They'd get cut off the talk shows if they called in, unless they had a Gestetner machine in their basement and they could wrap, run off a couple of hundred uh, toxic uh, newsletters with hook, cartoons of hook-nosed Jewish caricatures. They couldn't publish. Social media changed that in the turn of the century. And, they, and then people uh, with those kinds of distorted views could start to self-publish, find each other, develop virtual communities and silos of information. Then I talked about this broad mainstream, this distrust of, of mainstream, mainstream institutional or legacy media that's developed, the development of alt-right media. And I think there's an alt-left media as well that that, that is, is also culpable, mm-hmm. monetizing anger. Then you end up with the President Trump, the most powerful person in the world, validating the anger. And then you end up with COVID. And if you're stewing in that place of anger and alienation, COVID actually does look like a conspiracy of sorts, right? So uh, unfortunately, I think we now have a situation where there is a a small but not completely insignificant share of the population who can't let it go. And that that worries me in terms of the future of uh, certainly the conservative movement, in which I've spent 30 years, uh, but also our political culture more broadly. Does that therefore imply, though, that it will bleed into other subjects and areas? In other words, is it harder to govern here from here on out? Have we created a polarized community that never comes back together? I um, Look, we're a democracy. There's always going to be a range of views, and there's always going to be some extreme views. The a job of political leaders uh, wherever possible is to try to find, to build coalitions, broad coalitions of common interests and values without being steered by or or, or controlled by um, the fringe in their coalitions. And I think that's possible. It requires great deftness. It was, in, our, in my case, I think extraordinarily difficult in the COVID context. But uh, I, I think it's I think it's possible, but I do think that that the kind of segmentation driven by social media is there's no solution to that. It's just a social reality. And, and by the way, okay, I've spoken a lot critically about kind of alt right on this, but I've got to I've got to say, you know, in, in Canada, the increasingly aggressive and irrational woke left is not exactly helping when it comes to uh, social cohesion and and civil discourse where essentially their position is, is that Canada is, a, is an illegitimate genocidal settler state. And I mean, you're here in Calgary, they just canceled f- fireworks on Canada Day because they imagine somebody might take offense. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, canceling our history, 
ridiculing our, our national symbols and, and, and the institutions that made this country the envy of the world, I think that's another end of the polarization, which is deeply uh, destructive as well. I'm, I'm sorry, you didn't want me to get political, but I can't comment on these things without without the actual context, I think. No, and I think it's a it's an important point to remember that, to my mind, the problem isn't which end of the spectrum somebody lands on. It's that they won't listen to the other end. It's that there's no budging from a, a position and no openness to other ideas. You did go through the ringer. There's no, I think there's no two ways around that. Um, unfairly, I think, as you say, in the context of who you were and what you were representing, I, I want to ask you whether you think government, you know, the conversations, does it work? And I guess maybe the best way to ask it is, are you through with it? Or is there, is there po politics in your future? I mean, are you, I always joke that, you know, you're, you're not retired, you're, ref, you're recovering politicians. It's hard <laughs> to leave it behind. That's a good expression. Uh, look, I, I, I did 25 years of public service. I think I paid my dues. I, I loved the privilege and an opportunity of serving and making important decisions. And, and I, I hope in many ways, making life a little better for people. But uh, I, so I don't have any any thoughts about going back. Um, I'm enjoying learning a little bit of what something more like normal normalcy is, uh, the odd free weekend and free evening of personal privacy. Uh, and I'm enjoying uh, the, the challenges of in, in businesses, I get into various kinds of business in the private sector. So uh, I, I'm, I'm having a blast and I have no intention of going back. I guess you never say never, but um, I, for, for me, 25 years, basta. All right. Well, we don't begrudge you any sanity or privacy. Um, <laughs> but before I, I let you go, I do want to ask if there was if there was a thing you could change. If there's, if there's I know there's no silver bullet to this, but are there, would you think about how government works? Is there something you would say if we just did this, it would be better? Is there something that simple that we're that we should be looking to? Yeah. I, look, I, I guess I'll go back to where I started, which was the, the example of of healthcare. It is a peculiar example of how on many issues there is a, amongst the political and opinion elites in this country, a kind of parochial small-mindedness where our politics is just becomes a sort of recitation, this kind of, 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 of cliches as opposed to, to an openness to innovation, you know, on healthcare. I think everybody in Canada understands that the status quo is not working and that massive additional spending is, is not going to solve deeper structural issues that exist. You know, here, not a partisan issue. British Columbia has just as, this, as, as many problems with, with wait times and their, their system under an NDP government as Alberta does under a conservative government. It's not a partisan issue. I don't think it's largely a, a fiscal issue. But on that, the debate for the better part, the debate such as it's been for the better part of three or four decades has consisted of mindless name calling. If anybody proposes alternative ways of structuring the system while maintaining even universality, they're accused of wanting the worst of a US two-tier style system. Where we have throughout the developed world, two or three dozen different models of universal insurance and coverage, but different ways of delivering and paying, different ranges of choices, and and so that that would be an example to me of you know how we've we allow ourselves sometimes you know in in Quebec they have a really good expression la pensée unique single minded thinking or uh, monolithic thinking 
And sometimes we Canadians, uh, I think, fall into that trap of monolithic thinking. We need to get out of it. We need to be more innovative. We need to be and respectful of one another when we debate these things. So that would be my urgent. But that's what I would urge, which is um, a willingness to have a more growing up, mature debate about some of these critical structural issues, a, a greater boldness to embrace innovation. Look, I mean, for goodness sakes, the people that 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 built this country from the First Nations in this inhospitable environment to uh, the generations of pioneers and those who followed in their footsteps, these were tough people who overcame enormous challenges to build one of the most prosperous countries in the world in one of the most inhospitable climates spread out against the northern half of an entire continent. These are bold, tough, innovative people. I think we need to refine a bit of that, uh, rediscover a bit of that uh, frontier spirit uh, and apply it to uh, in innovative ways to solving chronic policy problems. I like a call to action that has real optimism in it. And we'll, we'll leave it on that note because it's a great one to end on. Um, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Amanda. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, The Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much of the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. Kathleen Wynne was a member of Ontario's legislature for 20 years and served as Ontario's first woman and first openly gay premier. While her tenure as premier could be remembered for a lot of things, cap and trade pricing of carbon, privatizing Hydro One, increasing the province's minimum wage, it will also be remembered as one that was dogged by the so-called gas plant scandal, an issue she inherited from her predecessor after construction of two gas-fired power plants was stopped in the face of fierce political local opposition. Kathleen Wynne joins us now. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for asking me. So where I want to start is really your reflection on whether it is acknowledged how difficult it is to govern. And what I mean by that is there tends to be a simplification of what's happening um, and the outcomes and decisions that are made. Is it frustrating when it's, we, we all know it's complex and making these decisions are hard. How does that simplification hit when you're the one making the tough calls? Well, I think, Amanda, um, there's an, a sort of uh, feeling or, um, I don't know, sort of uh, a consensus among a lot of people that once a government is in office and once there's a leader in place, then whatever they want to do, they can just do. 
And so if I can get the ear of the premier or the minister um, and I can make my case, then instantly something should happen. Right. And I think that uh, that was very that was very frustrating for me from the time I was elected really as a school trustee up through MPP minister and premier, you know, things do not happen instantly. Sometimes, sometimes there are, you know, there's a confluence of events and we've seen it through COVID where there's an emergency and things have to happen quickly or flooding or, you know, when there, when there's a real problem, then things have to move quickly. Um, and I think people take from that, well, if you could move quickly then, then why can't you move quickly on everything else? So I think that for me was the the most frustrating because there's so many things you want to do. That's hmm. the other. That's the other thing. You know, there's so many things that you have to um, make a priority, and it's it's very hard. Well, you can't do everything. You just can't do everything. It is. I mean, it's a, it's funny. It's a bit like when you're flying somewhere and the pilot says, you know, we're going to make up the time in the air and get you there faster. And we think, why don't we always do that? Why would you ever go the slow way? Uh, but to your point, something does get lost when we speed up the processes. Uh, is, is there a legitimate complaint uh, from your point of view that it, there's too much friction in the way of governing? In other words, that there are too many, you know, T's to cross and I's. So whatever it is that stops you from going in, especially as premier, you know, the, the most powerful person in the province that stop you from really getting things done. Well, I have to say on balance, I don't believe that. On balance, I believe that the civil service, you know, the people who have been there, there, there are people in the civil service of bureaucracy in Ontario and likewise in the federal government who've been there for many years. And that may sound like a bad thing, but it's not. It's a good thing because it means that there are subject experts. There are people who really understand how things work. I remember the first time I walked into a cabinet meeting, I wasn't an, I wasn't a minister. I was an MPP. I was chairing a committee and I walked in to deliver a report on water. It was in the wake of the Walkerton uh, situation and we were trying to put in place regulations that would ensure that that never happened again. And I remember walking into the cabinet room and the, the all the ministers were at the table, but then flanking them on the side were the scientists and the people who had the subject knowledge. And I remember thinking, and this was early on in my time there, I am so glad these people are here because I really don't know anything about water science. And I know my colleagues around the table don't. So thank God there are people who know and have a have a, a deep understanding of how this all works. So on balance, Amanda, I would say that the checks and balances that are in place are important, but you know, you have to bring the political, the political wisdom and the political smarts into the conversation in order to meet people in your constituency, in your jurisdiction, where they are. So that is a great example. And another, obviously, another big issue you handled very early in your tenure as premier was the ice storm, yes. where the path forward is sort of clear. There will be consensus around the concept that everybody deserves safe drinking water. You don't actually have to deal with kind of the naysayers on that one. Uh, you also, though, dealt with. But, but let me give you let me just give you a little yep. insight into that. The, the issue on that one was that there were people in apartments without heat, without electricity, and we were worried about them eating. We were worried about them getting food. We were worried about them being able to get down to the main floor if they were in a high rise. And so we tried to find a way. We worked with the bureaucracy and we worked with Loblaws, actually, to uh, put in place cards so that there could be some relief on getting food. 
it was so difficult. It didn't go well. We didn't have time to plan it properly. And I, you know, I admit that I, I said that it didn't work well, but we had to try something. Yeah. So in that case, the machinery of government was focused on getting people's power back and making sure that we gave information to people, we couldn't do the other piece as well as we should have. So it's just that, you know, that that's a juxtaposition that I will always carry with me. That's that being the ice storm, of course. Um, I guess there's an inevitable, yeah. an inevitable part uh, of this process for thoughtful people that will always Monday morning quarterback what you did. And, and of course, you have the opposition and the media and the public to help you with that. <laughs> to what extent is that feedback, I'll call it that, criticism it is, of course, um, fair. To what extent do you feel as though what was coming at you was justified uh, as something you could take on board and review uh, yourself with your team? And to what extent was it unkind, unfair, hateful? Uh, there's, a re- there's a range of those things that we know people in public life increasingly face. So I think, you know, it was a mixture of all those things. I mean, sure, it, it was fair. I just, I you know, I admit that it didn't that process didn't work as well as it should. I actually wrote a little piece for the star afterwards and said, you know, um, I, I'm always going to want to be that person who tries to do something, even if I fail. Um, but it was a good lesson for me and listening to people talk about what went wrong. It was good for me to understand. It was very early in my premiership and it was good for me to understand that the planning that's necessary to, to deliver something like that is pretty massive and pretty detailed. Mm -hmm. So even though I knew that it was a good kind of reminder that um, you have to, you know, you have to move judiciously. So um, I think, you know, the, the feedback on whatever you do as a politician is going to be mixed. I always say to the young people that I'm teaching now, there is no policy, there is no decision that's going to have unanimous consent in the public. You know, it's just, that's not going to happen. But when the voices are uh, are very agitated and there is a, a building resentment, then you you know you you have to pay attention to that, even if what you're doing you believe is the right thing to do. Were there times that you feel strongly about, in retrospect, when the wrong thing happened for political reasons? In other words, the right thing was one path and another. I can think of thing uh, examples I would offer up, but I don't want to. I want I want to ask you, if you have any, that you say, it shouldn't have gone that way, but that's the way the politics pointed it. Well, I have a reverse example. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, for one, I think it's the reverse. Yeah, agree. I would know, agree with that. Yeah, where we, uh, you know, we made a decision based on lots of evidence, Amanda, and lots of research and lots of good hard work that selling off part of one asset to build a new asset, transit, was the right thing to do, but the politics of it were dreadful. And it was, you know, there was a confluence of factors, including increase in uh, hydro prices because of all the investments we'd made in uh, a renewed grid that it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the increase in hydro prices wasn't because of the partial sell-off of Hydro One. It was because of all those investments that had been made over the la- the, the previous decade. But the politics of it were just dreadful for us. And you know what? In the moment, I didn't even realize how awful the politics were going to be. And that's on me not to have uh, gotten that. But from a a cash liquidity and uh, fiscal perspective, it was the right thing to do because we were reaching our borrowing ceiling and we needed to, you know, we needed to have we needed to have some some cash. So 
so that's the that's the reverse of what you're asking. Um, I'm just trying to think where, um, and and this isn't this isn't because I'm trying to be defensive. I'm just trying to think where the politics might have gotten in the way of the best decision. I'm sure there are small businesses in the province who would say to you that the decision on minimum wage was um, was a political one and was not. Uh, you know, was not rooted in good evidence. I would argue with that, however, because, you know, what we found was that there was an increase in jobs and, you know, the economy was doing well. But there certainly were many, many voices at that time who were saying that we were only doing that for political reasons. So maybe that's a good example of the that was perceived to be what you're talking about. Yeah, I think history is on on the side of uh, increasing it on that, uh, you know, yeah. that, on that case. What I guess one that I might ask you about, I'm not sure I can point to it, but you will, of course, always um, have lived through the gas plant issue mm. um, and uh, for better or worse. And it's it's interesting to think about how that might have happened for you if the folks in charge of it had been a had been the other party. But anyway, we can set aside all of that. Yeah. I think that's sort of irrelevant to me. What's most interesting about that? I'm going to I am going to be guilty of oversimplification here because we could spend, of course, an hour just talking about that one issue. But Arguably, politics made the wrong thing happen there long before you were premier. In other words, to my view and to the view of some others, a bad choice was made. We needed gas plants to replace uh, getting out of dirty coal. Gas plants were the right thing to do. Some people didn't like them. And the politics of those people won. And then it turned into this kind of cascading, of course, with a lot of other issues that are very complex. But do you look back at that and say, if only people had, had the fortitude to say to the folks of Oakville and Mississauga, we understand your concerns about the greater goods prevailing and you're going to have a gas plant in your neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, that the gas plant uh, decision hounded me throughout my premiership as well. So it was I certainly I certainly had to own it as part of the, the cabinet and so on. And it's a it's a strange one because I what I really believe is that had we actually been more political earlier. In other words, if we had realized that the location of those gas plants, because gas plants were going to be built, mm -hmm. you know, we, we needed we needed peak um, electricity power. That was the reality. And so they were going to be built. But if we had made a decision earlier to put them in a different place, which has now happened, you know, they, there are gas plants being built. Um, too many, I would argue. I don't think we need as many gas plants as the current Ford government is building, but that's another discussion. You know, we would have, we actually would have avoided a lot of the uh, anger and angst around uh, that whole issue. So I think, I think our political antenna on that one, actually, Amanda, were down. They weren't as good as they should have been. We should have said, okay, we hear what you're saying, but we're going to, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find a compromise. There needed to be a better process. Mm -hmm. It was a very bad process. And then we waited until into or just before in an election campaign to make the decision. It was just the worst possible timing. So our timing was off. And I think actually the decision was the wrong one in the first place. Interesting. When we think about it did dog all of you, but it certainly mm -hmm. as premier dogged you. Uh, how much did you have to change in the course of uh, of your leadership in terms of thickness of skin, ability to uh, disregard some things? Uh, because it does seem as though the tone of some of the debate and the feedback, the polarization, if you will, gets worse, uglier 
how did you, how did that, how did that affect you personally? Well, I think it's, um, I think it's a slow kind of boil that you go into, you know, you know, you sort of, you sort of absorb it. I always say to people, um, because I'm asked the thick skin question a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I always say, you know, you need, you need thick, but porous skin. So you can't have, you can't have a suit of armor because if you're wearing armor, then you don't hear what's going on and you can't take in the pain that people are bringing to you. And you have to be able to do that as a leader. You have to be able to hear that. So, um, I mean, my advantage was by the time I became premier, I had been in government for a long time. I had been in four ministries. You know, I had developed I had developed a real understanding of how things worked across government. I hadn't been in that position of ultimate responsibility, though. And that was the that was the different piece for me. And um, I think what happened there was I had to I had to learn to compartmentalize to a degree that I maybe hadn't before. I had to read the papers in the morning. I had to listen to the radio, go for my run, and then put the anger and the the kind of bile that was coming at me in a box, leave it at home and go to work and do my job and look at what I could do as opposed to what I couldn't do. And when I would stand in front of media in those last couple of years when our numbers were down and, you know, my personal popularity was down, um, media would ask me repeatedly, what's it like to be disliked so much? And Everything in me wanted to just say, oh, it's great. You know, I love it. <laughs> but I couldn't be, you know, I couldn't be flip. And it was painful. It was hard. But I always had to look at, okay, what can I get done today? You know, what can I actually get done? And I'm not going to waste this, this platform that I have to actually do things that I think are important. So I think I got I, I I tended not in my early days as a politician to really compartmentalize. You know, I, I really believe in bringing your whole self to decision making. But as things got hotter and more vicious, I did have to put some of that aside. When it comes to getting things done, which, of course, has to go on through all of this as premier and cabinet minister, you know, working closely with other levels of government. So a good lens, not just on how well provincial government functions, but how those relationships work. Are they working as they should? Did you come away with that thinking that everything's fine or that there are things we could improve about how the the three levels work together? I think there's always there are always things we can improve. You know, I think the um, I think the ongoing dialogue um, among the the levels of government is not what it should be. I think that it's very, it, it's often very transactional. And um, I, I often wish that there were more opportunities to actually develop relationships. I found, for example, the Council of the Federation, uh, where all the premiers meet, a very helpful place to be. You know, um, we would meet we would meet in person once a year, and then a couple of times um, throughout the uh, the year over the phone. And I found those in person meetings very very helpful because you got a sense of the the person. And so when I had an opportunity to sit down and talk to John Tory or sit down and talk to Stephen Harper or um, or Justin Trudeau, those were valuable opportunities. But they're few and far between, Amanda. And I think that um, that's that's a challenge. If I had it all to do again, I think, um, you know, I might I might more regularly contact those people. I mean, we we tended to talk when there was a thing we had to 
fix or negotiate. Um, and I probably needed to have more regular interactions with them. Both directions, municipal and federal? Municipal and federal. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the, the thing is, everybody's very, very busy. And so yes. to build in a regular phone call with everybody that, you know, is a is an important player at both levels of government would be impossible. And the ministers, the ministers have those relationships. That's really important that ministers develop those relationships. But but I think creating opportunities to come together face to face is important. You know, when Stephen Harper was the prime minister and um, I was first in office, there had not been a first minister's meeting for years. And that was that was a problem because the premiers didn't have a chance to actually develop that kind of connection with the prime minister. Um, I found it very helpful when Justin Trudeau was elected and we did have a first minister's conference and right off the bat, everybody knew where everybody stood. So that was, that was helpful. So in terms of when you talk to others, and I know you must, uh, who are interested in the process, who are thinking about becoming engaged, is it something you recommend? I mean, do you, do you actually say this is, this is a good life? It's a, absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, one of the reasons I'm teaching a couple of courses at U of T um, in the fall and in in the winter. And um, I say that to young people, you know, I, of course there are things I would change. Of course I would do some things differently. I mean, I'll be second guessing things for the rest of my life, but I am so grateful to have had the opportunity. It was just, it was just wonderful. And, you know, not just in the premier's chair, but as an MPP to be able to help people navigate government and figure out how to help their families and to be connected to communities in a way that you just can't in other roles, you know? I mean, I had the opportunity to knock on thousands and thousands of doors and walk up to someone in their home and immediately have an important conversation about what's going on in our world, whether they agreed with me or not. That is a huge privilege. And it's it's a, a really important and effective way to understand how our world works. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm very grateful for Uh, the opportunities that I had. I worry, actually, that young people look at the, they look at social media, they look at the, you know, the the reputation that politicians have. They listen to new politicians who, who are saying, who go and knock on doors and say, I'm not really a politician. Well, yeah, you are. And there's no shame in that, you know? And I, and I try to say, you know, you can have an impact on so many people's lives by just putting your name on a ballot. I love the positivity there. And I will be honest, as somebody who's never been in politics, but have been, have been politics adjacent because so many of my family have been mm-hmm. um, political. And my lens on it is that it's hard. You say, you know, the privilege of knocking on doors. I think, oh, my God, the horror of knocking on doors. Um, it, that's a hard thing to do, right? Yeah. To go up to a stranger and make yourself vulnerable and say, you know, here I am. Judge me. I need you to judge me and I need you to find it favorable in order for me to do the job I want to do. Do you think overall, I mean, to your point, sometimes the narrative gets a little negative. Do you think it's still a, a process that attracts people for the best reasons and in the right way? Or, or is it still generally a positive thing when you think about who wants to run and why they run and who winds up there? Generally, yes, I would say it's a positive thing because to go through the grief 
of gathering people around you to support you and raising money and, you know, all the all the public exposure that you have to go through. Um, you have to want to do it for, um, I think, mostly good reasons. Of course, I think there are people who go in very early in their lives and they think it's all glamour and they stay in and that's all they ever do. And I think that, you know, I think that's a problem. I think that bringing some life experience to it or doing it for a while and leaving and coming back, I think all of those are are uh, good ways of, of being in politics. But the politicians I've known, and I've known lots now, for the most part, Amanda, they're there because they want to help people, you know? Now, I may not agree with what they think is helpful, but they genuinely believe that what they're doing is going to help people in their lives. And that is the general rule. Just as most of those doors that I knock in, and you know, I have I have two daughters and a son. My two daughters really don't like knocking on doors. My son's good with it. But 99% of the doors that you knock on are people are very happy to have a conversation with you. They want to talk about what's important in their lives, you know? So I guess I, I mean, I sound a little bit like Pollyanna, but I think social media has made us feel more negative about our world than it actually is. You know, I think once you actually put down your phone and you're actually in the community talking to people, whether you're already in office or whether you're a candidate, you will find that people are very busy in their own lives. They have concerns. And if you listen to them, then you are going to have a good experience. If you don't listen to them and if you just lecture at them, then it's not going to go so well. But if you listen, which is, you know, a big part of a politician's job, then you're going to have a good experience. People are generally very interested in sharing their life experience. And a lot of times they're angry because nobody has listened to them. Interesting. And I think an important point that we can see magnified our differences rather than our similarities. Uh, that's one of the concerns we hear, though. And I, it's interesting. I say this in the context of uh, a current uh, Ontario government that actually is doing some unusual things. Right. It's it's a conservative government politically, but it's embracing unions. Um, it, you know, so it, maybe there there is a different mentality afoot in some ways. But we hear talk of polarization, the sort of Fox Newsation of mm-hmm. of Canadians. Um, do you, is that is that exaggerated? I'd, I'd love to, I'd love you to be Pollyanna about that, if I'm honest, because I hope yeah. it is exaggerated. I hope we're not going down that path. Well, you know, I'm I'm worried about it federally. I think that there is there's a pretty serious possibility that the next federal election will be very polarized, and will it's it's I think it's getting harder to find common ground. Um, you know, I would argue that there's an element of that provincially, but I think it's I think it's to a much lesser degree, actually. I think that the the populism of Doug Ford is more, you know, um, and I don't mean this to be snippy, but, um, you know, bright, shiny objects. And we're going to grab on this one. And this is what people are saying. So we're going to do this. But it's you know, I think he does listen to a certain constituency. I think that federally what we're looking at is a much more ideological situation, you know, where we've got a, a conservative leader who has a very clear agenda or the people around him have a very clear agenda and finding common ground um, and bringing in bringing in people who you don't agree with is not part of that agenda. And that really worries me because when we stop talking to people who disagree with us, then we're in trouble. We're in big trouble in our communities. And I think we're not as far down the road as the United States, 
but um, but I don't I don't think we can I don't think we can ignore the reality that that's that's a trend in uh, in Canada. Do you bring optimism? Um, and I'll admit I do to the notion that regardless of kind of campaign slogans and rhetoric and what gets said and fringe groups that can seem very loud and uh, and, you know, present Mm-hmm. In the end, when folks get into government in this country, to me, at every level, they seem kind of reasonable in the end. And I, I suspect it's because, um, you tell me, is it because of the systems, uh, because of the way government functions? There isn't, we're not a dictatorship. You actually do. There right. is a level of cooperation that even if you come in on a polarized uh, platform, you're probably going to have to move over to the middle a little bit. Can we at least say that that's what our systems do? I've always believed that. I remember when Stockwell Day was the was the leader, and I I would hold that thought. You know, it's okay if he gets elected. Will the civil service and the people around him will you know will push him to the to the center? And I kind of think that too about uh, Pierre Polyev. But I do think that there's a new permission generally to be more exclusive of people who disagree. You know, I, I would say 20 years ago there was less of that. Um, I think the rise in uh, you know, the anti-woke movement and misogyny and home and transphobia. I mean, there's no doubt that there and racism. I think that there is a there is a permission um, for behaviors that I would say a decade ago wasn't there. And that worries me. But generally, I think that our systems, the, the fact of our bureaucracy, the fact that our, uh, you know, our civil service is not politicized in the in the way that some others are in other countries. I think that's a huge benefit to us because it means when a prime minister and his cabinet or her cabinet sit down and ask for advice, they're getting advice that is, at least in my experience in Ontario, they're getting advice that is pretty nonpartisan. You know, it's pretty much rooted in evidence and what's going on in the world. Now, it can be ignored and it has been ignored in the past, but at least that advice is there and somebody's going to hear somebody's going to hear the the middle option, you know? So, I do put I do put some uh, some stock in that, but I can't I can't be completely Pollyanna right now. I feel anxious about what's going. On. I think the convoy and the um anger in that whole uh, movement or whatever it was is very frightening and I see kind of echoes of it in uh, in some of the things that are happening either in our schools or in our communities and that worries me. We're gonna have to leave it there but I so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being with us for this. Great to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Next in our series on the business of governments, we will check in with the Hub Roundtable.